0: We'll hear argument next to number 00 001307, Larry Massanari, Acting Commissioner of Social Security versus the Sigmund Coal Company. Mr. Wilson.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Congress enacted the Coal Act to prevent the collapse of a multi-employer private health care system that had promised health care benefits to retired coal miners. Miners were in danger of losing their benefits as coal operators were selling their operations and dissolving and going out of business and shifting responsibility for their employees to other employers that were in the multi-employer health care system. Congress enacted the Coal Act to stop this downward spiral. It wanted to ensure that a retired minor's benefits would be the responsibility of the operator that employed the minor, if possible, or if that operator was defunct with one of that operator's related persons. Section 9701 of the Coal Act effectuates this policy. That section sets forth the related persons who may be assigned responsibility for a em- for an operator's employees. Under a straightforward reading of that statutory language in Section 9701C2, the Commissioner may assign a minor to the direct successor in interest of a signatory operator.
0: Mr. Wilson, even the dissenting judge in the Court of Appeals didn't buy
1: that. Well, it is true that he did not agree with us, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, that the Plain text of the statute uh, did not support our reading, but I have to respectfully disagree with the dissenting judge because it is our position that it does. Well, d-
2: it depends on the meaning you give to the word "described." It depends in on section uh, 9701c2.
1: Uh, it depends on the meaning that you give to the word to "describe." It also depends, uh, Justice O'Connor, on the way one reads. Uh, the subclauses of 9701 c2. Now, our now,
2: well, uh, you have to uh, decide whether described in somehow includes uh, a reference to, as opposed to a description of.
1: Well, there are two possible approaches to this question, uh, Justice O'Connor. Uh, certainly, one meaning of describe is to set out or to refer to. Mm-hmm. And that is an established uh, common usage of the meaning described. It's a dictionary definition. And it's also true that the signatory operator is set out in and uh, expressed in each of the subclauses 1, 2, and 3. But I would also submit and, — and that is one theory under which we think that the plain text of the language uh, supports our position. I would also submit, however, that Even if described uh, has a more kind of a a different sense, nonetheless, a signatory operator may be found within those those clauses one, two, and three, because uh, a signatory operator is, by definition. Mr. Wilson, can I
3: interrupt you for a second, just on the word "described"? Does the word "described" have any meaning other than simply referred to, insofar as it refers to any of the any of the. Uh, uh, entities described in subparagraphs I, 2I, and 3I? Does it do anything other than, in fact, identify each? It, it, it refers to — well, it, it points back to — It doesn't to, give you a definition, for example, of a controlled group. It doesn't describe what a controlled group is. It doesn't describe what a joint venture is. All it does is say there are those animals out there.
1: That is right, now, but
3: so the and, and only uh, meaning that can logically be given to the word "describe" in the context of this statute is the one you give to it.
1: That is uh, that is our position, uh, Justice Stevens. You, Stephen, you think, you
4: that's think that's there's no no uh, difference between a provision which says a member of the controlled group of corporations which includes the signatory operation or a more detailed uh, description, any other person who is identified as having a partnership interest or joint venture with a signatory operator, etc., etc. you want to equate with those descriptions the words signatory operator. Justice Scalia. In the prologue, a person shall be considered to be a related person to a signatory operator, I, if I that person is, and then it goes one, two, three, and you say
1: signatory operator is one of the persons described. In well, a. I, I want to be very precise here because it's not necessary to refer to the prologue. After all, the, 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 the end, the flush paragraph, says a related person shall also include a successor in interest of any person described in the clauses, not described in the prologue. So, our, so it's not necessary to go to the prologue. All that it is necessary is to go to the clauses. And a signatory operator, first of all, it is literally described in, set forth in those clauses. Second it is a signatory operator is a member of a family that includes a signatory operator in that sense even in a broader sense or a different sense of describe it is a is a member of the group that it that includes a b and c now even if I think that I can concede that the contrary reading is a permissible one of the statute, even if picking up the statute and and reading it for the first time without any reference to the context of the poll
5: act. as I understand it, there hasn't been any court that has accepted your reading. So that courts, whether the person was writing in dissent or in the majority, have rejected your reading as an impermissible one. Am I right about that?
1: Well, they – they in the end agreed with us that that uh, the judge murnahan below and the dc circuit in the rg johnson case agreed with us in the end that the statute should be given this meaning
5: not this. on the basis of what the text says in both cases they said congress could not have meant what they wrote but as to the literal interpretation of the statute they all agreed they all rejected the notion that congress had in fact enumerated a successor of a signatory as within the, the text of the statute. That is correct.
1: Now, it's, it's our position though, that we disagree with those holdings and we, and it's our position that it is at minimum a permissible reading of a statute. You know any other
4: statute that's ever been interpreted that way? Where it, you know, describes certain people well, in certain clauses and a later provision says any person described in such and it includes a reference to signatory.
1: Well, of course. Uh, dis- I, mean, I would have
4: thought there would be something, you know, at least close to this. Do you have any? Well, what, what's the closest
1: example you can think of? Well, I don't know about describe. I do know about include. Certainly, is not and is not a word that is give, ordinarily meant to give an exclusionary reading. That is, it is. It's not an — include is, an, is a non-exhaustive list. So by saying it is a member of the controlled group that includes the signatory operator, it doesn't necessarily mean. It seems to me that the respondents would essentially say a member of the controlled group of corporation which includes the signatory operator, but not the signatory operator itself. And, uh, what we it,
6: like is a, a, an exa- a canon, for example, that says something like it is permissible for a court to accept an absurdly literal. Meaning, uh, reading of a statute where necessary to avoid an absurd result.
1: Well, the, the court has done that. I mean, where, court, that's right, what we want. The right, the court has done, done that. The court has done that. I, I can think Heck, of we've
4: ignored the statute entirely to, uh, to <laughs> oh, no, uh, what seems like done, a better done, result. Just, that.
1: just last term in a case called Cornell Johnson. v. Cornell Johnson versus United States. <laughs> uh, the court was presented with, uh, two meanings of the word revoke. And, uh, and the court, and that was a criminal case where the rule of lenity, uh, Operates, of course, and the court said, "Well, one meaning of the word revoke, even though less common certainly and perhaps strained, was the only one that could really make any sense out of the statute." And the other one is that cited in your brief. It is cited in the brief, uh, Your Honour, and it's and another case that comes to mind that's similar is Field versus Mans, and that is a also relevant case because there the court was faced with. Kind of a negative, pregnant argument. That is, well, here's uh, one language that appears in one part of the statute, but that language that we would hope for doesn't appear here.
4: I and am more fact- likely to think that Congress meant what it says. And and I, why do you assert that it is it is uh, in, unbelievable that Congress would have meant what it said here? It is certainly the case that the that the persons who would have been most affected by the interpretation of this language that you you proposed would have been the very coal mine operators who uh, were lobbying Congress to get this thing passed. It seems to me not at all inexplicable that they were uh, willing to have successors in interest of other people down the line uh, held liable so long as they themselves would not be regarded as the successor in interest To somebody who preceded them, uh, you know, saddling them with liability—I don't find that a a, an unbelievable scenario at all. It seems to me uh, a quite plausible. Well, several things. Uh, It it may not be a good policy result.
1: Well, it's not just a a question of not being a good policy result. It's also, is this anything that Congress could have conceivably wanted to promote in the language of the Act? And Congress was aware, to the contrary of, of the premise of your question, that it was exactly the problem of selling coal operations and then the original coal operator disappearing and, and not being Congress had, had
0: addressed that problem, as I understand it, in just the way you feel we should address it. Uh, in in some of the bills and predecessor sessions of of the Congress in which they specifically did include successors to the signatories. So that it seems if if you want to look at the, the, the broader record on what's believable and what isn't believable, at an earlier time, Congress tried, though it not or some people in Congress tried, though they didn't get their bills passed, to do just what you want us to say they did here. And yet, here they didn't. Isn't that a fact? Isn't that contrast something that we should take into consideration in deciding what is credible or not?
1: Justice Souter, there's no evidence in the background to the adoption of the Coal Act that Congress ever deliberately left behind. You mean this uh, particular statute? In this, this particular session statute? Of Congress. That Congress ever deliberately left behind uh, a provision for. Sure. Uh, I, that's, right, right. You're right. And, you're and, right. right. And, there, and there were many co- contentious issues involved in the framing of the Coal Act. This was not one of them. And the entire coal commission, which was in considerable disagreement about what the Congress should do, uh, addressed the issue this way, and this is unanimous on on their part, the ability of an employer to renege on its commitments to its retirees and dump liability on the funds disrupts any effective long-range solution. And then there's some further language, and then it says the commission believes that this situation is intolerable and must be stopped. There is no disagreement on that as being the, the core problem or one of the core problems that led Congress to enact the Coal Act. Uh, and, th- there's, uh, and there's simply no — I would submit there's simply no reason to think that Congress would have deliberately chosen to say we are going to place liability on these, what I would call the nephew corporations, that is, the, the successors in interest of the subsidiaries or the, or the corporate brothers and sisters, and not on — The direct successors, who were the very people to whom the original coal operator had sold their land, a very good
4: reason. A very good reason. It's the best we could do. They couldn't have gotten the legislation otherwise. Sure, I could design better legislation, but better-designed legislation is useless if it is not enacted. And the scenario I, I give you is is one in which the coal operators did not want themselves to be tagged. As successor corporations to somebody who previ- from whom they had previously bought the assets. Well, and they were the major players in, in this. Well, now, first of
1: all, it, I mean, it's a That's important why Congress it. It's
4: the best they could do. It may not be the best statute in the world, but it's a statute. It, it
1: did some good anyway. Well, first, it's important to remember that the coal operators were getting very significant relief uh, from the Coal Act, which is to say that uh, the, the members of the Bituminous coal, uh, coal Operators Association, who were at that time. Being forced to shoulder um, the costs of the retire of the employer, the retirees of the employers who had already gone out of business, they received a, uh, a, a great deal of benefit from the COLAC because uh, those, because the COLACT adopted the, the approach of going back in time and reaching some of those people who had disappeared. And the problem was that they had disappeared and shifted uh, and disappeared, and nobody had been there to uh, to, to pick up the the cost. And that, that was the, that was the very problem.
4: You you may be right. I, I mean, I, you know, I can't prove my scenario. You can't prove your scenario. But it seems to me the burden is on the government to give us a very good reason for ignoring what seems to me the, the, the the only reasonable reading of this language. And, 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 and your reason for ignoring it is, it is inconceivable that this is what Congress could have intended. And I think it is entirely conceivable. I'm, I'm not sure that that's the answer. But you 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 have to be very careful about
1: generalizing what is conceivable for Congress. <laughs> 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 Mr. Chief Justice, if there had been some indication in the legislative background that this was a contentious issue and that there was attempt to, as the respondents have said, reclaim what was given away in the compromise, uh, then then there might be some substance at that point. But there but there isn't. And horse th- is trading has got to be explicit. Well, it's, it's not that you have to be explicit. It's that one would certainly have thought this would have been an issue that had surfaced somewhere in, uh, in the background of the Coal Act, and it, it hadn't in this sense. I mean, all of the Coal Commission was, uh, was on board on this particular issue, which is uh, the, the problem was that coal operators had gone out of business and that, this, and that the, the, the chain of succession hadn't been there. But the odd, oddity
5: that you're relying on an illogic between the related people and their – and their successors count and not the successes of the, um, the operator, we're told that there has not been, in the history of the operation of this Act, any case where liability has been imposed on a successor of a related um, entity.
1: That, that's not right. I've, I've checked that. It's not in the record in this case, but there have been instances in which Social Security has assigned liability to a successor of a related person.
5: But you would uh, the, not in many cases would you agree to that?
1: I can't, I can't state how many because uh, there are 16,000 assignments and they are not organized Well, my, organized my point is, way, is
5: if this was a minimal likelihood, the other was a much more substantial risk for the coal companies one could easily see that the coal companies want to protect themselves. And, and the other didn't mean a whole lot to anybody, so it stayed in.
1: Justice Ginsburg, I think that to adopt that view, one, ha- one would have to know for certain that related persons were necessarily not, coal compa- not also coal companies. But there are coal companies that are also related to other coal companies. There are — I mean, that is a uh, — that is a — Uh, a form of organization that exists in the coal industry, which is that coal companies are — and and the Coal Commission documented this — that is, the coal coal industry is characterized by uh, interlocking networks of parents and subsidiaries and uh, corporate brother and sister corporations, and they do that for some valid business reasons, to uh, take advantage of limited liability laws and other reasons as well, involving closing — the need to close coal mines and start up elsewhere. But the, the, the point is, it's not necessarily the case that the uh, the successors of the related persons are not coal companies. They, there may be some that are not coal companies. Certainly, they're not. Uh, certainly, if they're related persons, they will, on some occasion, include not coal companies other than coal companies, but they also will include coal companies. And Congress was addressing the situation more generally. And given that — given the fact that Congress knew that coal companies were organized uh, in in interlocking corporate forms, I I don't think I can agree that these other people, these successors of uh, related companies would have been, you know, strangers to the legislative process that Congress would have found it easy to pick on, which I have to say is — I'm not aware that the Court has adopted a theory of statutory construction, uh, which is that uh, the statute should be construed where, you know, because one people were the ins and the other were the outs. And the only reason that we can make sense of the statute is that, you know, Congress decided that the outs were an easy target. I mean, that's uh, — that But
5: there's something else. If you — once you can see that you — on the text, you lose, then if you would agree that it would be a much larger class to stick in, that is — Successors of the uh, the signatories would be a much larger class than successors of related companies it, if you If you agree with that then for the court to say we 're going to cure this defect in the statute by including a large group because there's a smaller group that's there. usually when the court's faced with that choice it's, it will say well then then then, then the others the small group shouldn't have been included.
1: Well, first, I would not agree that we lose on the plain language of the statute. I think our reading is certainly a permissible one. But to the contrary, I would say uh, Congress must have included what I will hypothesize as the small group for a legitimate policy reason, and it would be very odd that Congress would not also include the large group who are uh, more, re- more directly — at least more directly related to the problem at hand. I'd like to reserve the range of my time, if I may. Very
0: well, Mr. Wilson. Uh, Mr. Buscemi, we'll hear from you.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. There are several things that are not in dispute in in this case, and I think it's worth uh, reminding the Court of some of what they are. First of all, Congress did not say that the successors of signatory operators are excluded from liability. Congress could have said that. It did not. It, secondly, Congress did seek to assign as many combined fund beneficiaries as possible to specific signatory operators and to keep the unassigned beneficiaries to an absolute minimum. Thirdly, as Mr. Wilson said, the coal industry was characterized by shifting forms of corporate organization. This was one of the very problems that Congress was trying to address, that you had minor, mining companies selling assets, other mining companies coming in, apparently indistinguishable to the outside observer. The mine looked the same, the people working there were the same, the equipment was the same, and yet the company that did own the assets at one time sought to walk away, and the, other, and the company coming in said, well, I'm not responsible. Uh, uh, Fourthly, the statute includes very broad provisions defining related person, far broader than the ordinary circumstances in which parent and subsidiary liability um, for each other's uh, debts or, or obligations would be found. And finally, also undisputed is that it's not only that successors and in interest of related persons are liable for the combined fund obligations, but it's also that the successors and in interest of the signatory operators themselves are liable for the individual employer plans, uh, section 9711, which involve very substantial obligations, and for the 92 plan. All of that is undisputed.
4: And how, how do we know that? Uh,
7: 9711 G1 explicitly says that successors in interest yeah. to signatory operators are liable for the individual employer plans right. and for the 92 plans.
4: I'm not sure that helps you. Yeah, well, why doesn't it shut against you?
7: Uh, well, I, well, I readily acknowledge that you can make both arguments, but I think the better argument is that it helps us because it adds to the incongruity that our <laughs> opponents are trying to argue for here. It adds to the oddity of the result. It says that Congress wanted to make successors and in interest of related persons liable for the combined fund. It wanted to make successors and in interest of the signatory operators liable for the individual employer plan and for the 92 plan. And yet Congress wanted to carve out a little segment there uh, for signatory oper- successors of signatory operators and the combined fund. It's we not just a
3: little segment because if your opponent is right, everybody would have a motive to sell out right away. So it'd be, it'd be the whole industry would get a benefit from the other — from your opponent's reading of the statute. Well — Everybody this, should have just sold out right away.
7: Well, precisely, Your Army, one of the things that I, I, I'd like to point out is that one of the enormous anomalies of what our opponents are arguing and what the Court of Appeals has held here is that it essentially says that Congress deliberately put into the statute the seeds of the statute's demise — Sta- Congress created a situation in which anyone uh, who was on, on whom liability was imposed under this statute could sell its assets to someone else, distribute the proceeds to its shareholders, dissolve the corporation, and the, and the obligations would be terminated, and yet the operations of the coal mine would continue on as is. But, but the, the answer is, to I mean,
5: that? I don't follow that because isn't it just standard corporate law that if you sell out your assets and then quit business, And there are liabilities out there that your shareholders will be stuck with that liability up to the amount that they gained from the asset sale. Isn't that just standard corporate law?
7: Well, I suspect, Your Honor, that uh, the argument would be made that that's also not in the statute and that, therefore, you can't import that into the statute. No one has denied, when we've said that this is a potential result of the argument that's been made here, no one has said it is not because the shareholders would take on that liability.
5: But isn't that, why would that state law be displaced? The standard provision for a company that sells its assets and then goes out of business for there to be shareholder liability.
7: Well, Your Honor, it may very well not be displaced, but I could respond to that with the argument that nor should the successorship um, pre-existing law be displaced. That is, Congress acted against the background of pre-existing law, both uh judicial in- uh, interpretation of the statute and the normal rules of statutory construction written into Title I.
4: If it it did that, it wouldn't have had to have the last last clause of uh, of, uh, Section 9701C2, which says a related person shall also include a successor in interest. If it was appealing to the general rule that successors in interest are always covered, that would have been unnecessary, as well as the provision that you mentioned earlier, where, where they specifically said as to some matters as to some matters, the successors in interest of, of, the, uh, of the current coal companies would be, would be covered.
7: Well, you're absolutely right, Justice Scalia, but that doesn't mean that Congress, therefore, should be uh, penalized for including some more specific provisions. There's nothing that Congress — if Congress wanted to jettison Title I and the normal rule that a successor of a corporation is liable for that corporation's uh, obligations, then Congress should have said so. But, that, that,
5: but that meaning would be, make the successor equal. To the the signatory corporation and that 's not what you 're urging and that 's not what Mr. Wolfson suggested the statute means you 're saying that the that the successor has successor secondary liability, and then what you 're looking at the dictionary act, it says successors are the same so i don 't think that 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 one one section one works for you because it would mean. It's the Successors Library is not a second category of liability, but it would be up there, the top tier, with the signer itself.
7: Your Honor, as a matter of discretion, the Commissioner, in assigning the beneficiaries, could elect which of several possible assigned persons, it was going to make the assignment, too. And I think that's all the Commissioner has done here. The, the fact of the matter is, if, if we want to do an absolute literal reading of the language, I think that the signatory operators are included there. I think what the, our opponents are doing is they're saying we want it one way because we want the natural reading, but we don't want the really absolutely literal reading.
5: This Court well, said — that. that's also I don't understand, because I'm not sure that the, the — when, when the — Uh, Title I defines successor, it is talking about the person who buys assets. I thought it was talking about and the business goes on. I thought that in the meaning of that section, it arises from a merger or an acquisition and not an asset sale where the company goes out of business.
7: Well, that may be, and that's what our opponents argue, but that issue is not before the Court right now. That issue was not reached by the Court of Appeals. The issue before the Court is whether this statute can be read uh, to cover successors of signatory operators what, or successors in interest of signatory operators, however that may be uh, defined. And as I, I, as I think the, the Court has said in, in, um, in other decisions, sometimes one needs to depart from the ordinary or most natural meaning in order to adopt a meaning that is consistent with the overall intention and policy of the statute. Which That's Holy know. Trinity, isn't it? Well, I think in Holy or Trinity we they were talking about down the down spirit down. of the statute, Your Honor. We weren't going that far.
0: Going back to your argument that the, the, the other side's position is simply an immediate inducement to sell, isn't one answer to that uh, that if that's what the, uh, the, the signatory does — Uh, It's going to be the signatories, brother-sister corporations or parent corporations uh, that are, in effect, probably going to be penalized, as it were, with liability. And isn't that the reason why the inducement that you refer to does not operate in such an automatic way?
7: Well, not necessarily, Your Honor. It would depend on what the nature of the corporate family is. Are there multiple corporations?
0: Are Yeah, it would depend on how control is exerted. But uh, presumably, uh, in some of these relationships, there would be a sufficient degree of control to exert that would would prevent uh, this untoward result.
7: We're not saying it would happen in each and every case, Your Honor, but I think certainly you, you would see a lot of smaller companies – Uh, using a transaction like this in the future to escape this liability.
2: Does the Act impose uh, potential liability on related persons of successors and interests to signatory operators?
7: Uh, Well, Your Honor, again — It doesn't specifically go down that line, and I'm not aware of any case in which you've taken — the SSA has taken a a successor to a related person and Is that what Sigmund Cole
2: is, one of the respondents here, a related person to a successor to a signatory?
7: Yes, it's a related person to Jericho, which is the successor. Yes, Your Honor. And
2: you can't point to anything in the Act that would cover that?
7: Well, Your Your Honor, I I think that if if Jericho is liable — Mm-hmm. then Sigmund would be liable as a related person to Jericho. I don't understand our opponents to be challenging that. I think they're only challenging whether Jericho is liable. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Very well, Mr. Buscemi. Uh Mr. Woodrum.
8: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Before the Eastern Enterprises case came to this Court in 1998, the lower courts were required to address the question presented by Eastern as to whether its retirees should be assigned to its successor. The commissioner responded in that case that the uh, COAC did not provide for successor liability. The commissioner's argument is set forth at pages (coughs) 1A through 8A of the appendix to the amicus brief filed by R.G. Johnson. In that case, or in that argument, the commissioner stated, and I quote, that Congress omitted successor companies from the Coax assignment provision cannot be attributed to mere legislative inadvertence or neglect. That particular sentence is at page 3a, uh, and he further stated that at that page, given that the Coax refers to successors in several other Coax sections. Congress's omission of successors from both the requirements of the assignment hierarchy and the definition of signatory operators was clearly intentional. While it is the case that the Secretary was promoting at that time a policy of nevertheless assigning uh, uh, beneficiaries, to successors where the operator was out of business (coughs) and there were no related persons, that was never rooted in any notion that there was something in the definition of related person that made the successor a related person. It was simply a manifestation of the Commissioner's uh, assumption of what Congress would have wanted the Commissioner to do. What do you think
2: the strongest policy reason would be for imposing liabilities on successors and interest-related parties, but not on successors and interest to signatory operators?
8: I don't know that there is uh, any policy reason for imposing uh, them Why on — Why would
2: Congress make that choice?
8: I think Congress made that choice because, as Justice Scalia has has noted, this was a statute that came to ve- came together very quickly under great pressure. It was worked out. Uh, by a number of groups. They were facing a strike uh, at the end of the year, and uh, they had had a veto of the earlier statute by President Bush in, I believe it was April, March or April, and they were left with a short period of time to get it done, and they simply got it done. Those words appear there what they mean is not, before the Court, the word success or an interest of related persons.
6: If it's inadvertent, if it's inadvertent, I think we should try as hard as possible to get the interpretation they would have wanted. You think it's just inadvertent.
8: I don't know, uh, Justice well, What Barr, other possible
6: is, explanation could there be? Well, the, It makes no it, sense. Well, Agree to it, that. It, so a, what possible explanation could there be other than a legislative mistake?
8: The, the uh, one possible uh, reason why that is there is that it- was never intended to have the broad meaning which the Commissioner has given it, which yeah, is- but I mean,
6: why? What, 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 what? You said there is no reason that you can think of. I can think of none. Any policy it could serve to have the, the nephews related but not the this direct descendant makes no sense to me. And you can't make any sense out of it either, I, aggra- I gather. Now, that being so- what? Why? Do, why was it written that way? And we can think of one answer: it was inadvertent. Is there any other possibility?
8: <laughs> the uh, I don't know why it's there. We have no legislative history as to why that phrase was well, we do there. Have we're asking papers. you
4: to speculate if there's no conceivable reason I'm I'm inclined to say yeah maybe you know maybe it was a mistake well, and we should we should regard it as a scrivener's error you you cannot conceive of any reason is that what you're saying why why that why it came out that way
8: I think it came out that way because when you look at the parallelism of the earlier draft of the statute there had been provisions that were parallel uh Although they referred to successor, there was a — in the in the immediately earlier draft that's uh, appended to, again to the R.G. Johnson amicus brief, there was a provision that did define a, a signatory operator to include a successor, which, which is — Which would
4: make you think that this was intentional, but you, you exactly, tell us you, tell us you cannot conceive of any reason why somebody would do that intentionally.
8: To put in uh, Justice Breyer's question was, why might there be a reference to successor and in interest of a uh, related person and not such a reference to uh, a successor interest of the direct signatory. And that is because between the the couple of days between the uh, draft that had successor liability for signatory operators and the enactment, the version that actually was hammered out and agreed to, the successor language was ripped out of the definition of successor uh, of signatory operator. It seems clear there that uh, there well, was. Was a it ripped decision. out, or
4: was it
0: never put in?
8: Well, it in was in this
0: particular bill. It was never put it in. It was not the, put in. It all was right.
8: from the earlier draft. Okay, so kind of they draft. didn't
0: have to do any ripping to the text with which they started here. Not uh, I, this I, text. That's let, let me just go one step further than Justice Scalia's question and, and, and ask you this. I, I take it it's, it's, it's correct. That at no time in this litigation has your side either represented to the court or tried to offer any evidence uh, to any court <coughs> that this was the result of a, in effect, a deliberate political uh, agreement. Uh, you know, we'll withdraw our opposition if you'll take that out, kind of agreement.
8: No, we've not taken the position that there was a, uh, a some sort of a trade-off of. Taking it out of the one section then, and yet leaving it in the other. Then that really than, does
0: leave it as kind of in, unexplained inadvertence. I mean, that's the only way we can look at it, isn't it?
8: It would be, if it's unexplained inadvertence, it would be in leaving in language that speaks to successor and interest of it, the related it, it is a
4: mistake, but you don't know which mistake it is, whether it, well, is, no, I think it, it, it is failing to include the, uh, the original owners or including the, uh, the later. No,
8: I, it, it, it would seem So clear. maybe we should
4: ignore the later language instead of ignoring this
8: language. That's a real puzzlement, which language well, we should ignore. That <laughs> is the, problem, the, the problem is that, uh, and that's why the courts tend to enforce the plain language of the statute as written. Uh, is because we don't know what happens in those discussions, in those uh, negotiations that lead to the enactment. You're,
4: you're, you're not saying, are you, that you know for a fact that there was not this this kind of motive to simply save the liability of the initial coal owners? You, you don't know for a fact that that — Was not why it was eliminated, do you?
8: There is nothing in the record that speaks to it one way or another. But it's true, you see, I know Justice
6: Scalia won't look to this part of the record, but there is legislative history that to me strongly suggests there was no such political deal. You have Senators Wallop and Senator Rockefeller get up and they say this does cover the successor in interest. And in my experience, whenever one senator says such a thing, and that's actually a contested issue the other side gets a different senator to get up and say the opposite. So, so I would say that it's very contrary to any uh, situation in which I'm aware in which there is a real political fight.
8: Well, let me explain each of those, those two comments. First of all, uh, Senator Rockefeller uh, put some comments into the record on many different points, and so far there have been uh, three circuit courts that have declined to attribute uh, or, or to give plain language the meaning that, uh, that Senator Rockefeller said that you have on three other issues in addition to this particular issue. Those cases are noted in, in our brief. Secondly, uh, as far as Senator Wallop's comment is concerned, it appears that it was simply added in as a technical explanation. I don't think that uh,
6: I agree. I'm just saying that the fact that they're a- there is would- evidence that what you're saying is completely true, that this was not a deal. Uh, If that's evidence of that, I'm not saying how strong it is. But what I'd actually like to ask you is, if, in fact, it's inadvertent or we don't know, then why don't we just do this? It says the term signatory operator means a person who is a signatory operator. The first sentence of the U.S. Code, just after it defines lunatic and idiot, says that the word person includes corporations. Then Section 5 says, the word company, and it includes corporations, companies, associations, the word company or association, when used in reference to a corporation, shall be deemed to embrace the word successors and assigns, as if the word successors and assigns, or words of similar import, were expressed. And it tells us to read statutes that way unless the context indicates otherwise very well. What in here indicates otherwise? Isn't that the issue? The issue is not the meaning of, the, of, of whether one, two, and three include assigns. The issue is whether one, two, and three preclude the ordinary meaning in the preceding sentence of person to include
8: the successors of a corporation. JUSTICE BREYER, the, the uh, Title I Dictionary Act, by its terms, is to be applied when there is no evidence.
6: That's right. In the
8: statute, no, that's exactly. We have ample evidence in this statute that Congress specifically considered both questions of successor and successors in interest because those terms are used throughout the statute. For example, uh, <laughs> at section ninety-seven eleven uh, G, the term "last signatory operator" is defined to include successor in interest. And but the what you're doing thing about right
6: this minute, you see, which is fine, which I'll let you do and I'd like you to do, but note that what you're doing is not addressing, as I think you're quite right, whether you can shoehorn successors into paragraphs one, two, and three, which is pretty tough to do. Rather, you're addressing a different question of whether the context shows that the ordinary Dictionary Act definition should not apply to a preceding sentence, now, noting that that's what you're doing, I'd be happy to have you do it.
5: May well, I — He's uh,
4: doing that because you asked him the question. I mean, don't, don't blame <laughs> it on him.
5: May, may I, well, uh, I, I that by well, why does asking am I wrong in saying that the Dictionary Act, the use of the word successor in the Dictionary Act is not the use of the word. If Justice Breyer was right, the successor means successor, but I thought successor — in the meaning of the Dictionary Act, was not the kind of successor that we're dealing with here, that is an asset sale, but was the successor corporation when two corporations merge, when one corporation acquires another. And if that's so, then the Dictionary Act would not touch at all the asset sale
8: Exactly, Judge Ginsburg, that's the position. Well, why
6: is that? Because what, the, what it says is, literally, pretend that the word successor appears in the statute that you're reading. Okay? I'll pretend it. So I now read the word signatory operator means a company and its successors. Well, what in there says that I can't read this as applying to an asset sale <laughs> as well as any other kind of transfer?
8: Again, the Dictionary Act is of general background relevance to the court to provide assistance where Congress hasn't spoken to the issue. But going back, at, at my peril, to Section 9711G, which does have the words you're looking for, or I should say that the commissioner is looking for, uh, in Section 9701C2. The interesting thing about Section 9711G, it applies to different, but brother plan, shall we say, or comparable plans that were also uh, (laughs) part of this uh, legislation. And Section 97.11G says, for purposes of these plans, it shall, the last signatory operator, shall include a successor and interest. And that's the only rule, it says, rules for purposes of these plans and that is uh, the, the, the words as that go to successor and interest and a subpart that goes to post-enactment successors is the only special rule there, which has to carry the implication that there was some certainty uh, to not having that term appear in Section 9701C2.
3: May I just clarify one point in response to ju- your answer to Justice Ginsburg? You do agree, do you not, that even though this uh, sale was an asset sale, that we are dealing with a successor and in interest of a signatory here? Within the meaning of 9701C.
8: As the commissioner has defined it, that issue as to
3: whether... So the term successor, at least in this statute, includes a purchaser at at an asset sale as well as a purchaser of
8: stock. Uh, No, Your Honor, it doesn't necessarily include that. That's the way the commissioner, that's the position the commissioner has taken. But haven't you
3: conceded that you are a successor, your client is a successor in interest of a signatory operator?
8: As as the uh, commissioner... I didn't
3: think you challenged it.
8: that. Well, it, the issue is not before the court. That issue is reserved below if the if the court concludes that a successor in interest to a signatory operator <laughs> is covered, then we would be remanded back to determine whether we as an asset purchaser are in fact a successor in interest as that term is used.
5: But there are there are it's statutes it. that define successor in interest to include a kind of an asset sale. You, successor and interest can mean different things in different statutes.
8: Exactly, Judge Ginsburg, and that's why it would be remanded for further determinations. Although the Williams Mountain uh, Court, uh, the, the D.C., uh, the District of Columbia Circuit, several months ago in the case of Williams Mountain, did define that term to, uh, they didn't give it a specific definition, but they said it's somewhere between a tax code successor. And the Blacks Law Dictionary common law successor, which does not include asset purchaser.
4: Mr. Woodrum, it seems to me you, you cannot fairly have it both ways. You can either concede that a successor within the meaning of this Act includes an asset purchaser, and then make the argument that using the Dictionary Act wouldn't wouldn't produce a sensible statute anyway, because under the Dictionary Act successor would not normally be interpreted to include an asset purchaser. Now, you can make that argument if you concede that under this legislation, successor does include an asset purchaser. But but if you are not willing to concede that point, then it seems to me you have to abandon the argument that the Dictionary Act makes no sense here. It may well make sense if you accept your definition of successor.
8: We would not rely on the Dictionary Act as having any relevance on remand. The Dictionary Act has no uh, applicability to the statute because the statute itself deals with successor liability and successor and interest liability. This is not a concept that Congress did not have in mind uh, and, and therefore Except left it, the
3: dictionary. It, it ad- deals with successor liability in a way that you've been unable to explain makes any sense whatsoever, that there's no reason to impose successor liability on the successor of a related person Well, not imposing it on a successor of the signatory.
8: It doesn't. The statute does not impose liability on successors.
3: Successors of related persons.
8: No, sir. It it speaks to successors in interest, which is where some of the difficulty in this case arises because the commissioner has just lumped the two together as though they are the same. So when we look at the language of the statute, even under the the reading that that the commissioner has attempted to uh, uh, expand to...
3: You're suggesting there's a difference between successor and interest and successor?
8: Yes, I I believe there is a difference. And what is the difference? Well, typically, if you look at the Black's Law Dictionary or the common law application of successor and interest, it is statutory succession, merger, name change, successors, and so forth. Uh, And, in fact, at one point in time, the commissioner even had adopted that. But granting
3: that, assume it only refers to... A limited class, It still you still have failed to explain whatever that class of successor and interest includes. Why should it apply to successors of related persons and not to apply to successors of signatories? I don't think you've given us a reason for that.
8: Well, it, it really I don't know the reason <laughs> for that. Congress wrote the act that way. That's the way it came out. It doesn't uh, cause any loss of benefits. It doesn't provide any harm. And whatever The result of that is, it wouldn't be even if there were some oddity about it. It wouldn't serve as a basis to, if you will, bootstrap liability onto, as one of the justices indicated before, I believe it was Justice Ginsburg, the the majority, if not the entirety, of the operators that are actually affected by this. Other than the the notation this morning by the Solicitor General, there we weren't aware that the commissioner had ever made. At assignment of law not television. contesting
5: that you, that statement in, in your brief that wasn't merely
3: emphasizes be, not. That merely emphasizes the incongruity of the statute. If there, it didn't serve a function there, why would they take the trouble to put it in and not put it in for signatories? <laughs> it, just, it just doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, it, it's worse. It's perverse, if your view is correct.
8: I don't think so, uh, uh, with all due respect, because what what happened — uh, or, or what is a plausible scenario is that we have fifty years of retroactivity in commercial transactions that have occurred in the coal industry. Nobody has disputed that this is a manner of doing business in the coal business to buy and sell assets, so the focus was to avoid the possibility by putting language in definition of signatory operator that might enable might inject confusion or interpretation by by the commissioner, by the combined fund, or even by the courts, that that signatory operator meant anything other than the entity that signed the agreement. And by taking – by ensuring that there is nothing in this act that opens that up, then there – it is clear that what liability has been imposed goes on the signatory operators, and the other operators aren't going, such as Jericho in this case, aren't going to be held responsible – for beneficiaries they never employed based on transactions that happened 20 or 30 years ago, which were very common. But if I
3: understand the definition of related persons, it could cover people not even in the coal business at all and it, their successors
8: and interests. It does, but the thing about that definition is, and the reason it has some logic to expanding liability, is it does encompass entities that have an economic connection with the employer. I
9: do, I do have one question on on. On the basic statutory point, the, the shoehorning question of whether or not uh, Shackelford is, is is described in the statute was Shackelford a member of the control of a controlled group of corporations?
8: No, it was not. It was a family-owned company. It had no related persons.
9: So then, uh, Roman one would not apply.
8: That's correct. There are because it seems to to me, if
9: Shackelford had been a member of a control group of corporations, then it might have been included in the control group, and then it might have been described.
8: Which is the problem with the commissioner's uh, linguistic gymnastics in trying to say that the the commissioner's definition uh, in that case would basically mean that there's always a control group because one is always related himself so we always have a group of 1 but but linguistically that can't really be the
9: case but community. if it had been a member of a control group not a group of 1 that argument would have been slightly more plausible it seems to
8: me i don't think it would be any more plausible you would still than be rel- you would language. still be
9: related to yourself <laughs>
8: exactly you'd still and the interesting thing about that argument not to not to belabor it but under that argument you would always make an assignment the commission would always make an assignment <coughs> to a successor who never employed the individuals, even though the Acts assignment criteria at 9706 says you make assignments to employers under certain employers that employed or signatory operators that employed the miners in the coal industry, under that interpretation, you would first go to a successor, even though there may be other employers out there
9: uh, who uh, who actually uh,
8: employed the miners.
9: When I talk about Shackelford, I mean the first Shackelford, Shackelford the seller was never a member of a control group.
8: That's correct.
9: Because if it had been, I think the Commissioner would have had a better argument. And it would still had the problem of being related to yourself. I
8: we would still had all the linguistic problems with, with describing. Well, I don't
9: think all, because it is, the word there is include. It's. In one. And so that, you're describing somebody who's included within a controlling group. But if it's, it's not applicable, then I don't need, I don't think we need to pursue it.
8: Well, it's not applicable here. I I think that uh, uh, we'd still have the problem with the basic problem that some of these clauses, for example, refer to limited partners. They're included, yet it's quite clear that they're not to have liability. So the fact that they're named or mentioned uh, would still lead you to an unworkability with that kind of definition. And it also uh, ignores the, the prior draft of the legislation, which had those very words uh, in in draft, and they didn't appear in the enacted version, as well as the inconsistency with the 97.11 language, which does include that
5: language.
3: I know you've discounted the significance of the legislative history, ju- the Senator's comment, and so forth. If there had been a committee report which clearly stated that the drafters of the committee report thought that they had picked up successors to the signatory — would you say the statute should control or the committee report should control
8: the, the jurisprudence of this court is that the language of the statute controls when it's clear,
3: even if it's perfectly clear, Congress intended otherwise
8: Yes, unless it, it, if there were a, some kind of a, a very unusual situation, a question of a scrivener's error or something, then then perhaps it would. It would be relevant, but, of course, there were no reports at all on this. I guess the
4: answer is that the only way it, it can be perfectly clear that Congress intended otherwise is for both Houses of Congress, not a single committee of one Congress, to have enacted the provision.
8: Exactly. That would
4: make it perfectly clear that both Houses intended otherwise. Make it perfectly
3: clear to Justice Scalia. <laughs> it, 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 it,
8: it, it, makes, it makes for a, a rational jurisprudence when one uh, tends to enforce the, the language that's actually in the statute. And, Let me point out that what we're talking about here is retroactive liability. This liability is grounded in transactions that occurred decades before enactment of this law. That's what
3: makes it so anomalous to impose successor liability on successors of related persons who don't have anything to do with the coal industry. That's what's – the troubling thing to me is the extent – of the, li- the successor liability that is included within the statute, and then that it does not include people who are still in the coal business.
8: But if But if that question comes to the Court, the Court will have to deal with that question as to whether that is liability that may be enforced and imposed on such distantly related entities for historic transactions under the same criteria that the Court used, for example, in the Eastern Enterprises case.
4: Of course, these people were distant not only from the transactions in question, but also from the negotiations that produced the statute. Exactly. And, and that may well be the ex- explanation of why they got stuck.
8: Yes, if and, they weren't there to represent their interests, then uh, and they likely weren't, since I don't think anybody that is that distant, distantly related would it have even been aware that there was a problem in funding benefits. But to to reflect back on the question of sort of the clear language and this Court's view of how clear Congress must be in enacting these statutes, uh, as the Court said in Landsgraft, since the early days of this Court, we have declined to give retroactive effect to statutes burdening private rights unless Congress made clear its intent. Requiring (laughs) clear intent assures that Congress itself has affirmatively considered the potential unfairness of retroactive application and determined that it is an acceptable price to pay for the countervailing benefits. And this, this liability is all retroactive, and we should be looking for a very clear expression of congressional intent to assign it to successors or successors of interest before the commissioner may, uh, in effect, impose large ad- – what are now administrative obligations. Of
3: course, here there's no doubt about the fact that whoever is covered, it was intended to be the statute was intended to have retroactive effect.
8: Yes. Which it is of course what land it, is, was it is retroactive to that. everyone yeah. uh, that is covered. Yeah. Uh, final point is that if this language is enforced as written, the benefits are going to be provided to the Shackelford beneficiaries on a prorated basis by all the operators who are assigned liability, including Jericho to the extent it, uh, it otherwise has valid liability for people that it did employ, and Congress specifically made available the interest from the Abandoned Mine Land Trust Fund to subsidize that liability. And to date, all of uh, that liability that for the orphan beneficiaries who have no, have no employer or related person still in business, has been funded by the interest that's been made available. And there has been no premium assessed on the other operators to pay for the unassigned beneficiaries or these orphan beneficiaries' health care. So Congress not only made clear in the way it laid out who's to receive the liability, but it also provided sources of funding and guarantees so that those uh, minors, those retirees, who have no last employer still in business will receive their benefits. And you say
2: that funding has been adequate thus far?
8: Yes, Your Honor. That there has never been a call on the assigned operators to pay any pro rata premium uh, towards the payment of unassigned beneficiaries health care. Further questions, I'll
0: thank you, Mr. Woodrum. Uh, Mr. Wolfson, you have half a minute remaining. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chief
1: Justice. uh, Very briefly, the purpose of Section 9701C2 was to reach the signatory operators and the broad group of persons that were related to them by successorship and by the related concept. And it did that specifically because Congress did not want to go to the abandoned mine fund or to a pro rata exaction on the other signatory operators unless that was necessary as a last resort. Mr. Woodrum said there's no harm caused by uh, affirming the Fourth Circuits. but that, even if nobody loses their benefits tomorrow as a result of affirming, Congress did view that as a less desirable alternative.
0: Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Wilson. The case is submitted.
5: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Tuesday, the 13th of November at 10 o'clock.